A.W. Tozer once said, I think it might be demonstrated that almost every heresy that has afflicted the church through the years has arisen from believing about God things that are not true or from overemphasizing certain true things so as to obscure other things equally true. To magnify any attribute to the exclusion of another is to lead straight for one of the dismal swamps of theology, and yet we are all constantly tempted to do just that. Indeed, there is nothing more important in this life than a right understanding of who God is, at least to the extent that we are capable of understanding who God is. And of course, there are aspects of God that are clearly described and defined in his word. But look, at the same time, the 66 books of the Bible, as exhaustive as they are about the plan of God for this world, cannot even begin to fully explain or describe who God is entirely. Right? Besides which, we simply do not have the capacity as created beings to fully grasp the depth and breadth of an uncreated, eternally existent, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God who created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And so as I mentioned last week in part one of this sermon, we tend to fill in the gaps. We, we tend to, to try and compensate for the aspects of God that we either don't fully understand or that we find disagreeable. Tozer continues, for instance, the Bible teaches that God is love. Some have interpreted this in such a way as virtually to deny that he is just, which the Bible also teaches. Others press the biblical doctrine of God's goodness so far that it is made to contradict his holiness. Or they make his compassion cancel out his truth. Still others understand the sovereignty of God in a way that destroys or at least greatly diminishes his goodness and love. It is a grave responsibility that a man takes upon himself when he seeks to edit out of God's self-revelation such features as he, in his ignorance, deems objectionable. You understand what he's saying here? When it comes to God, it's not okay for us to simply fill in the gaps in his character that we either don't understand or don't prefer when we read the scriptures. We have to take him for who he is as he is revealed in the Bible. Not who we want him to be or wish for him to be, right? Because there are places in Scripture, namely like the two chapters we're studying last week and today, that describe God over and over again as being righteous, just, and true. And yet the way that righteousness and justice and truth is being expressed in the story doesn't always sit very well with our modern sensibilities that tend to, for instance, conflate uh, justice and fairness. Right? But listen, justice and fairness are not the same thing. Not by a long shot. God exacted justice on the cross when Jesus was crucified, and so justice for mankind's sin was satisfied. It was served in Christ's death, but it was hardly fair. Right? Jesus was innocent, blameless. He, he did nothing wrong. He did nothing to deserve death, let alone crucifixion, a particularly cruel and lengthy form of suffering unto death. Nonetheless, justice was satisfied at the cross upon the death of the only perfect man to ever walk the earth. That's what makes his crucifixion so horrendous, so offensive, so unfair, and yet at the same time so profoundly beautiful for the believer. Okay? God is just, yes, but that doesn't mean he's fair. And, of course, the trouble that causes for us today is that, again, we conflate, uh, we equate fairness with justice. Right? We think life should be fair. We want equity. We want all things to be equal. But just look at the lives of Job, Joseph, and most of the prophets. What happened in their lives wasn't always fair. 
but it was always righteous, it was always just, and it was always true, at least on God's part, because God is always righteous, always just, and always true. Right? Because those attributes, they're not just a part of what God does. No, they're a part of who God is. Righteousness, justice, and truth are a part of his very nature, just as is love. And so when God exercises his righteousness, justice, and truth, he not only is performing righteous, just, and true deeds, he's also revealing to us who he is, which is why it's so deeply important that we don't try and apologize for or reinterpret according to our own preferences these scriptures that describe the character of God. Because when we do that, we're not only misrepresenting these stories about him, but more importantly, we're not accurately reflecting him to a world who desperately needs a revelation of God as he is, not as we wish for him to be. Right, So let's pick the story back up where we left off last time. We've been working our way through the entire book of Revelation, but this one sermon spans chapters 15 and 16. This is as the, the seven bowls of God's wrath, his final judgment on this earth is poured out. And, and so we're going to be in chapter 16 today and see what we can learn about not only what God does, but who he is. And we'll do what we did last week in part one of this sermon. We're going to read through the entire chapter uh, at first, and then we'll go back and dig into the study of it. So let's turn to Revelation 16, if you have your Bibles. And we're just going to read through the whole chapter to start with, okay? Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go, pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast. The kingdom was plunged into darkness. The people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed." And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. 
and every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plagues of the hail because the plague was too severe. In response to the worship from the martyrs in chapter 15, you'll remember from last week, seven angels now come out of the sanctuary of the temple and present seven bowls of God's wrath as a part of the worship service to be poured out on the unrepentant world. This is the third and final series of judgments, and as John says in verse 1 of the last chapter, with the pouring out of these bowls, the wrath of God, he says, is finished. As noted in part one of this sermon, the time for intercession is now past. God, in his unapproachable glory and power, has declared the end has come. No longer does he stand at the door and knock. Now he enters to act in sovereign judgment and in terrible wrath. And again, as mentioned last week, there are many parallels, not only between uh, each of these series of judgments in Revelation, but also between these events and those of Exodus as Moses led God's people out of Egypt and the, the events that preceded it. And so as the bowls are poured out here, the Egyptian plagues of Exodus are paralleled, of course, in many ways, but so too is the protection and deliverance of God's people from the wrath to come. And so with a loud voice, the voice of God himself, because remember, no one else could enter the temple because of his presence there, as we saw in the last chapter. These bowls of wrath are poured out on the earth and all those who have rejected Jesus Christ. And in both stories, in Exodus and Revelation, we see sores breaking out in pe- uh, on people, the waters turned into blood, uh, the darkening of the sun, the drying up of water, and the imagery of frogs, which of course symbolizes uncleanness. And in each of these three series of Revelation judgments, the first four plagues are visited upon the earth, sea, inland waters, and heavenly bodies, respectively. While the fifth plague involves darkness and pain. And then the sixth, John sees three evil spirits coming out of the mouths of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. The dragon um, being Satan, as referenced in chapter 12, verse 9. The beast being the Antichrist, as described in chapter 13. And the false prophet, uh, also described in chapter 13, who begin to gather hordes of enemy forces preparing for battle from the vicinity of the Euphrates, which has been dried up at this point. By the way, um, for the ancient Jewish recipients, the hearers of this prophecy, they would have immediately understood the image of the drying of a river, particularly the Euphrates, as an invitation for an invasion. Okay, uh, the Euphrates marked the eastern boundary of the land given by covenant to Abraham and his offspring. It also separated the Roman Empire on the east from invasion by the terribly feared Parthians, who, uh, whose expert bowmen had conquered the entire territory from the Euphrates all the way to the Indus Valley. And, and also with the sixth bull, there's a warning, uh, along with a promise, by Jesus himself. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Which we see with the sixth seal as well, by the way, where we find the ones coming out of the great tribulation gathered to the Lord in heaven in Revelation 7, 14, just as Jesus promised and prophesied in detail in Matthew 24, 27, where after describing these very same events, he says, for the, as uh, the lightning comes from the east, and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And with the sixth trumpet as well, where they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here, 
and they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them in Revelation eleven twelve. And so then finally, the seventh bowl is poured out, right? The, God's people are delivered. The seventh bowl is poured out in a loud voice. The voice of God himself declares from the throne, it is done. Accompanied by flashings of lightning, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, and a hundred-pound hailstones falling from the sky upon those left on the earth. And yet through it all, as the human race stands on the threshold of eternity through plague after plague after terrible plague, instead of responding to this immense pain and suffering by repenting and giving God glory, which they've been given every opportunity to do and then some. Instead, they curse and blaspheme God. People who by their own choosing decide irrevocably to reject the warnings, to reject the prophecies, to reject the testimony of believers, and ultimately to reject Christ himself, even in the face of the terrible wrath of God. Yet in the middle of it all, in fact, in the middle of both of these two chapters that outline the pouring out of God's wrath on those who have rejected Christ and his free gift of salvation, right in the middle of both chapters, there's a song, a lyric in each of them. Chapter 15, it's described as the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb that we looked at last week. And here in chapter 16, it comes from the angel and the martyrs who have conquered the enemy by the word of their testimony. And each song echoes the other. Chapter 16, verse 5, just are you. Chapter 15, verse 3, just and true are your ways. Chapter 16, verse 5, O holy one. Chapter 15, verse 4, for you alone are holy. Chapter 16, verse 5, who is and who was. Chapter 15, verse 3, O king of the nations. Some translations say king of the ages. Chapter 16, verse 7, true and just are your judgments. Chapter 15, verse 4, your righteous acts have been revealed. You see, one thing is for certain, no matter what you may think about God, in the midst of the most terrifying and intense judgment ever to befall mankind over and over and over again, the Lord is declared to be righteous, just, and true. In the words of Robert Mounts, the judgment of God is neither vengeful nor capricious. It is an expression of his just and righteous nature. All caricatures of God that ignore his intense hatred of sin reveal more about human nature than about God. In a moral universe, God must, of necessity, oppose evil. You see, God cannot be just if he is, uh, does not exercise justice. <clears throat> God cannot claim to be just if he does not exercise justice. And so for all that we don't yet know or understand about God, there are attributes of his nature that we can be sure of. Just as the host of heaven declares, we know that, number one, God is righteous. That was the first point in our outline from last week, if you're taking notes. And number two, we know that God is just. That's why, uh, that's why Jesus had to die on the cross, because justice had to be satisfied. Otherwise, God cannot claim to be righteous, just, and true. And so Jesus, the only perfect, spotless, worthy sacrifice, had to be crucified on a cross. And yet, you understand, uh, Jesus didn't just die on a cross. He died on a cross for you. He sacrificed his own life for people who hated him, the very people who were killing him. And yet even beyond that, beyond that moment, knowing every single thing that we would ever do in this life, undeserving of that sacrifice, every sin, every offense, every selfish act, every hurtful word, every single God-hating moment of our lives, he could see every bit of it, and yet he chose to die for us anyway. 
Of course, we know what that says about him because no one else could do what he did, right? No one else could make atonement for our sins by offering their own life in place of ours. No one else could endure the suffering of the cross, bearing the weight of every offense we've ever committed and ever will commit. No one else could conquer death so that we might have eternal life. No one else could raise from the dead, proving that everything he said about himself was true. No one else could send his own spirit to fill ours with power and wisdom and strength that we would need to carry out his will for our lives no one else could do what Jesus did of course we know what that says about him that he was God in the flesh he was the Messiah he was the savior of the world the only true king we know what that says about him but do you know what it says about you can you begin to fathom what your worth that a holy God would send his perfect righteous blameless innocent just and true one and only son to suffer the most brutal death for you can you even grasp the magnitude of what that says about you what you mean to God that he would go to the most unfathomable lengths to save you from the wrath that every single one of us deserves You see, we wouldn't sell ourselves so short so easily in this life if we really understood just how much we're actually worth to him. We wouldn't settle for the pleasures of this world if we really understood the pleasure that he takes in us, his own creation. Psalm 149.4 says that the Lord takes pleasure in his people. We wouldn't be satisfied with the riches of this world if we had any inkling whatsoever of the riches to be found in the depths of relationship available to us in Christ Jesus. We wouldn't allow ourselves to become hopeless about the future if we honestly believed that he secured our future on that cross 2,000 years ago. We wouldn't hate ourselves like so many people hate themselves today if we really grasped just how profoundly he loves us. Do you have any idea at all just how much you're worth to him? No other king gave up his life for yours. Remember that the next time you subject yourself to something other than Christ that wants to rule over your life. Just ask yourself, what could that person or that thing possibly give up for me that could ever compare to what Jesus has given for me? You see, he died on a cross to pay for your sins so that you wouldn't have to. And yet, incredulously, there are those who still choose to reject that free gift that he offers to us all. Dr. William Lane Craig said, it is logically impossible to make people do something freely. It's logically impossible to make people do something freely. It may sadly be the case that in any world of free creatures, there will always be some who freely reject God and his every effort to save them. I take seriously the scriptures that say God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So his plan and his will is universal salvation, and he works toward that end, and yet the fact that universal salvation is not achieved, and we know it isn't, is only because people freely repudiate God in his every effort to save them. Okay, at at the end of your life, you won't answer to your spouse, or your friends, or your employer, or your government, or your bank account, No, at the end of your life, the only person you will answer to is Jesus Christ. He alone has the final word on all things. He alone is the arbiter of our eternity. He alone is the one we must give account to for who or what we've allowed to rule over us in this life. 
It doesn't matter what the world may claim to the contrary or how far you may have ever strayed from the truth. God is still in control no matter what claims this world tries to convince you of. Jesus Christ has the final word on all things, including your eternity. And in light of that eternity, this life on earth is a mist. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote, What is your life? For you're a mist that appears for a little time, then vanishes, James 4, 14. We're here for a little time, and then we vanish. We vanish into eternity. And yet, who or what we follow in this little time that we have on this earth determines where we end up for all of that eternity. So look, I'm not telling you to hate money, but don't trust in money. Trust in Jesus Christ. I'm not telling you to hate everything this world has to offer, but don't trust in what this world has to offer. Trust in Jesus Christ. I'm not telling you to hate favorable circumstances that may arise in your life. That's great. Just don't trust in those circumstances. Trust in Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, you don't have to ignore the struggles that we all have to face at times in our lives. They're real. They're certain to come. But don't trust in the certainty or difficulty of those struggles. Trust in the certainty of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he alone has the final word. He alone can supply all of your needs, Philippians 4.13. He alone can fill you with inexpressible joy, 1 Peter 1.8. He alone can satisfy the longing of your soul, Psalm 107.9. And he alone can guard your heart and your mind with the peace that passes all understanding no matter what you're facing in this life, Philippians 4.7. Why? Because only Jesus Christ has the final word of every single moment of your life. So, yeah, you may have lost your job and run out of money. You know what? Jesus has the final word. Your marriage may be falling apart right now. I'm telling you, Jesus has the final word. Maybe you're facing the greatest battle of your life today. Jesus has the final word. You may have no idea what tomorrow holds and from where you're standing. Maybe it doesn't look good. Listen to me. Jesus has the final word. There are plenty of people in this world who are more than happy to tell you what you cannot accomplish with your life. I don't care what they have to say because Jesus has the final word. See, the only limitations that you're bound to in this life are the ones this world places upon you when you follow something or someone else other than Jesus Christ. That's what's, that's what's so confounding to me about people who reject him, even after revealing himself to them over and over and over and over and over again, first in great love, then in great power, and as we've seen in our story today, finally in great suffering. Yet no matter how he reveals himself to them, they still curse and blaspheme him. Come on, can you see how important it is that we don't leave these difficult parts of the gospel out of the story when we tell it? When we live it out in front of other people because God's mercy and grace and forgiveness will one day come to an end. And then all that will be left is justice for those who refuse to let Jesus bear their punishment for them. Again, Tozer writes, God's justice stands forever against a sinner in utter severity. The vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. It hushes their fears and allows them to practice all pleasant forms of iniquity while death draws every day nearer and the command to repent goes unregarded. As responsible moral beings, we dare not so trifle with our eternal future. God is righteous. God is just. And finally, God is true. 
okay, society, our culture, will never be a source of truth. We can share truth, but we can never be the source of truth. Only Jesus Christ can be that. The truth can be proclaimed in our culture, but it is only found in Christ. And yet our culture is increasingly pushing these twisted versions of the truth for us to believe in. And unfortunately, many in the church are choosing to allow their convictions to be shaped by our culture rather than the truth of his unchanging word. There are increasingly today more professing Christians and church leaders who take their direction and form their theology, at least in part, from whatever popular notions our culture is championing at any given time. And if those popular notions happen to be in contradiction with the Word of God, they simply write off those passages of Scripture as no longer relevant for our world today. It's exactly what our culture is saying about much of the Bible right now. Even the parts that deal with universal moral law that transcends time and culture to the point that the word relevant is being used as a club to beat back anyone who disagrees with the most progressive leanings of popular culture, no matter how far those ideas stray from God's intended design for his people. But I got to tell you, what's been most surprising of all is that we're seeing so many in the church and its leaders co-opt the culture's misuse of words and ideas like being relevant to justify every convoluted, incoherent, misguided, watered-down, powerless expression of the gospel into a completely non-offensive, unconvicting, spineless message that couldn't possibly transform anyone's life, let alone save them from an eternity without God. And the defenders of this new unoffensive gospel they often will say to me well I thought the gospel was supposed to be good news (laughs) it is if you're a follower of Jesus Christ the gospel is good news to those who live by it but listen to those who reject it it is offensive and given the passages we just read today it can even be terrifying and you know what it's supposed to be Because its intended purpose is to bring conviction to the hearts of those who are lost and comfort to those who are found. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul and Peter, quoting Old Testament scripture, both point out in the New Testament that the message of Christ is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Romans 9.33 and 1 Peter 2.8. So why are so many today unwilling to teach the gospel unmolested by the progressive philosophies of a godless culture? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because of fear. We fear the disapproval of man more than we fear the disapproval of God. And so instead of embracing the truth because it makes people uncomfortable, instead we try to fashion a new truth so as to avoid offense and discomfort because we're afraid of being rejected by our culture. Right? If the world rejects us, which... By the way, Jesus promised us that, that it would. Right? How are we going to make it? How can we be successful? What happens when people or maybe even the government really comes against the church? How will we get by in a society that decides to wholesale reject us and our message if we refuse to compromise that message? Well, here, here's something you may or may not know. Our provision doesn't come from what we can save or stockpile. It comes from knowing the truth. Our security and protection doesn't come from how well we can build walls around us. It comes from knowing the truth. Our health, our confidence, our joy, our peace, our freedom, they don't come from anything we could ever do for ourselves. Those things come and only come from knowing the truth. 
That's why the angel Gabriel said to Daniel that those who know their God will stand firm and take action because knowing the truth is the key to living a life that is truly free from all fear and anxiety and worry and doubt. In fact, we should be more focused on knowing the truth than we are even in providing for our daily needs. Some people take offense at that, even reject that notion. And of course, I'm not suggesting or even advocating we should all quit our jobs and sit home on the couch and just meditate on Jesus because the fact is knowing the truth will motivate you to get up each morning and go to work and do the things that you need to do to receive that provision. The point is not that we don't fulfill our daily responsibilities or necessities. The point is we should never be focused on those daily responsibilities or necessities nearly as much as we are on knowing the truth which happens to be found in only one person, and that, of course, is the person of Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the source of all truth. Our job is to share that with others. Bill Holt said discipleship isn't just one of the things the church does. It is what the church does. So look, although, uh, you know, the fellowship that you can get at church can be great, people don't need the church to have fellowship with other people. Although the quality of the Sunday morning experience at some churches can be great, people don't need the church to be entertained. Right? Although there are events at churches that can be wonderful, people don't need the church for great events. The fact is, as good as all of that may be at some churches, all of that can be had in the world as good or better than it can ever be had in the church. At the end of the day, There's only one thing that the church can offer people that cannot be found anywhere else, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth about God. That is the one commodity we have that no one else has, the one distinction that sets us apart from everyone else, which is why Jesus didn't say, go therefore and create safe, comfortable spaces for all the nations. He didn't say that. Or go therefore and entertain all the nations. Or go, therefore, and put on great events for all the nations. No, he said, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Because the only thing that we have to offer people that cannot be had anywhere else is the gospel, which means making disciples is our only job. It's not only profoundly important, by the way, that we understand that, But it's equally important that we understand what making disciples actually looks like because for a long time in the modern era of the church, we've mistaken discipleship for evangelism as if those two things are one and the same, but they're not. Of course, you cannot have discipleship without evangelism. But again, Jesus didn't say, go therefore and make converts of all nations. He said, make disciples of all nations. It's one of the reasons we don't see the church in the New Testament treating evangelism the way we typically do in our churches today, where we learn new programs or new methods of presenting the gospel, and then we go out and use those methods or evangelism programs to try and lead people to Christ. It isn't necessarily wrong, by the way, but it would probably be unnecessary if disciples lived today the way they did back then. Right, because disciples' lives in the first century were so starkly in contrast with popular culture, they didn't have to go looking for converts. They simply lived like Jesus, which was a radical departure from the way anyone else was living at the time. And as a result, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts 2.47. Because the people who had grown weary of this world, what it had, had to offer them, they saw these disciples of Jesus walking around empty of self and yet full of joy 
while living such radically different lives than what they could find anywhere else in the world. And I'm telling you, it attracted people to the gospel en masse. And so they just kept doing it. They just kept planting churches. And everywhere they planted a church, the disciples in that new church acted like Jesus, particularly early on. And the result was more and more people being attracted to it. And it spread like wildfire. Again, not just evangelism, but true discipleship, which is what Jesus modeled for us in his own life, where he didn't just call people to have faith in him, to conversion. He called people to follow him. That's discipleship, the ongoing, lifelong process of following Jesus day by day. It's what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. It's a radical and radically different way to live your life than you can find anywhere else. So you understand, disciples aren't just believers. They're followers, right? Jesus didn't walk up to people and say, hey, come have a personal relationship with me. Hey, say this prayer, repeat after me. Hey, just come believe in me. Those are all good things, but that's not what he said to people over and over and over again. He walked up to people and said, hey, come follow me. In other words, come be my disciples. And then after learning how to be disciples, he called them to go and make disciples. And hence, the church was born. See, it's all about making disciples. It always has been. And as long as we're on this earth, it always will be. And look, the most effective way you'll ever make disciples of Jesus Christ is simply by being one. By reflecting the righteousness, justice, and truth of God in our own lives. I'm not saying you don't have to proclaim the gospel. You absolutely do. You have to open your mouth and proclaim the gospel. But if what you're proclaiming doesn't line up with how you're living, nobody nobody cares what you have to say. You can tell people what you believe in all day long, and you should. But until they see you living it out in your own life, they won't care what you believe in. That's why only disciples can make disciples, and the good news is, That is our only job. (laughs) I I can almost picture God looking down on his church from heaven with everything we we try so hard to do and be for this world, things that he never called us to do or be. And I can almost picture him looking at us and saying, you had one job. Right, I mean, stop trying to do everything you were never meant to do and just go make disciples. That's your only job. Which means, of course, the big question for every disciple of Jesus Christ today is, are you making disciples of Jesus Christ? Because, listen, if you're not, then you're not serving Christ. If you're not actively making disciples in your life, then you're not serving Christ. And listen, the remedy is not a new evangelism program. It's it's not you having to try and become something you're not which is it's a part of the problem with christians not making disciples because we think making disciples means doing something awkward or unnatural and so we avoid it that's not what it is at all making disciples requires a lot of courage and a lot of commitment because you have to live in such a way that people will very naturally either gravitate toward you or run away from you as fast as they can but it's not about some kind of awkward or unnatural presentation to a stranger I mean, again, you you have to proclaim the gospel, but if you live like Jesus did, you won't have any trouble finding an audience. It's about living your life in such a radically Christ-like way that when people who are around you, people you're in relationship with, come and ask you why you are the way that you are, and I'm telling you they will, then you simply tell them the truth about who Jesus is and what he's done for you. It's as simple as that, and it's actually a very natural part of living a Christ-like life because it's nothing more than an extension of who you already are as a follower of Christ. 
And then when people respond favorably to that gospel, when you tell them about Jesus, well, then, of course, discipleship continues. But listen, that's not where it begins. The making of a disciple begins the moment you begin living your life like Jesus in front of other people. Think about it. Jesus was discipling those 12 men. They followed him long before they ever even fully understood who he was. They followed him long before he ever asked them if they knew who he was. They followed him certainly before they put all their faith and trust in him. I mean, just all the way up to the crucifixion, they were running scared. It's the same with you and me today. Okay, if we want to make disciples of Christ, then we have to model the life of Christ in front of them first. Author Francis Chan once said, lukewarm people call radical what Jesus expected of all of his followers. Okay, look. We all have different ideas about God, about who he is, what he's like, what he expects from us. That much is true. But what is also true is this age of grace that we're living in where Jesus ever so patiently stands at the door and knocks, waiting for people to open the door and let him in. That day is not going to last forever. The sun is setting on this final age of the earth, and yet there are people all around us who still don't know him. And so our job as Christ followers is to show people who he is as he is revealed in the Bible. A righteous, just, and true God who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of what? The truth. 1 Timothy 2.4 That's why God said my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Hosea 4.6 Because we can't have life. Listen, you cannot have eternal life without the truth. And what is the truth? What is the truth? Well, in John 14, 6, Jesus answered that question very clearly. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me.